You know, as a parent, I get to be an example of how a person, not how anybody should die, but how someone can choose to have the experience. And I get to be an example of that for, for That's Glenn Buckland. Well, hi, it's so nice to finally meet you. Hi, it's very nice to be with you today, too. Thank you for the opportunity to chat it up. He's 56 years old. He's a father, a grandfather, a husband, a son, and a brother. And he doesn't think he's going to make it to his next birthday. He's choosing to be okay with that. He was even okay the first moment he heard that he had a terminal diagnosis, which was just about a year ago. Another doctor comes in and she says this. She walks in and it's just Katie and I. And she says, you know what? We have some more test results back and you are a very special person. And, you know, I kind of smug. I'm like, well, you know, that's what my mom always told me. And I said, uh, I hope in a, in a good way. And she was kind of smiling and her face just went pale. And she said, no, not in a good way. Um, She said, uh, we've narrowed this down and you have plasma cell leukemia. And there's only about 200 people, actually at that time she said there's only about 150 people in America that have it. And there's probably not 300 people in the world that have it. So unfortunately, there's not a lot of research. There's not a lot of protocol on what to do. All we can do is treat it like multiple myeloma, try and get as aggressive as we can based on what your body will tolerate um, if you're open to that. And I said, so what does that mean? And she said, well, that, you know, it's terminal. Like, whoa, terminal. And that's when I had that like, wow, this is really getting interesting. It wasn't like, oh my God, now Katie on the other hand, she got very pale and very emotional and had to sit down and, you know, trying to compose herself, you know, for my sake. Um, But the doctor, you know, answered all of our questions. And I said, well, what does that look like? And she said, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. It could be 36 months. If we get all the regiments just right, depending on how your body does, if we don't do anything, if you stopped right now, you're probably gone in a couple of weeks. If we start chemo, we feel pretty confident we can get at least, you know, six to nine months if your body responds well you know, we could get longer. And then there's new protocols and things coming out all the time. So, you know, we just have to play it by ear. What do you want to do? You know, it was like, whoa, that is, yeah, that is a lot of heavy info. And she said, but you don't need to answer that now. Just, you know, let me give you some time to process and I'll come back. Because, you know, I'll remind you, they had had me on chemo to save the kidneys. So I was kind of out of the danger zone. And I was actually feeling pretty good. The best I had felt in a long time. I was hydrated. I was rested. They had my anemia, which was causing all of my uh, exhaustion. They had all of that in place. My back had quit hurting. You know, I was feeling like a million bucks. And then that exact moment, you know, they come in to say, oh, yeah, and you're and you're going to die sooner than later. (laughs) So it was it was kind of a surreal experience. And when I was in the hospital, if you're like me, you might be wondering how someone can hear what a lot of us might consider devastating news and approach it with a sense of wonderment and curiosity. For Glenn, it began when he was a young boy and heard the concept of infinity for the first time. One of my earliest memories about anything esoteric was as a a small kid, probably 
first or second grade, and I had heard the word infinity at school and a classmate, and it was, it was first grade, a, a classmate had heard the word and was explaining to me, you know, the definition of infinity. You can imagine it goes on forever. And and I got, and I remember very distinctly sitting out in front of my house after school on the curb with my feet in the street, slow residential street, just sitting there with my head in my hands, watching the ants on the ground, pondering, getting mad because I couldn't wrap my mind around infinity. Even at that age, I was having these questions that not many other kids had about you know, infinity and what was, what it was all about. And then as I, oh, sorry, as I evolved a little bit, my, my thinking, my learning, my understanding through Christianity and that background, um, I dealt with a lot of guilt and fear because, you know, by their standards, I wasn't a particularly good Christian. And I was, I was raised, you know, the mantra was good Christian boys don't act that way. Like, oh, okay, well, I got to figure out how good Christian boys are supposed to act. And it felt inauthentic. And as I got older and I kind of moved I softened the edges on some of that and began doing some other things, just trying to look for something that resonated with me as truth. Um, I found myself moving further and further away from that dogma, trying to find a more holistic understanding because intuitively I knew that whatever works in the day-to-day also works in that bigger picture, also works in the microcosm of things. I just needed to find that link that brought those three together because I I truly believe, even before I understood the concepts of one story, I I just, it, it was so clear to me that there's only one thing happening here. From the largest to the smallest and everything in between, there's one intelligence, there's one idea, there's one story. I don't know how it all works, but that's what I know. And I've got to go out and find some supportive evidence and so that was kind of my path through my teen years and, and my 20s, even into my early 30s. And then in 2005, I got invited to a place where I walked in and it's like, oh my gosh, these people see it exactly how I see it. And I need more. That place that Glenn walked into was a community of people who were practicing science of mind which is practiced worldwide in spiritual communities known as Centers for Spiritual Living. Science of Mind is a spiritual, philosophical, and metaphysical movement that was developed in the late 1920s by Ernest Holmes. Holmes spent much of his childhood asking himself, What is God? Who am I? Why am I here? And exploring these questions and by reading the teachings of other philosophers, like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Holmes developed a structure of concepts based on the religions and philosophies of human history. He founded Science of Mind within the New Thought Movement, which holds that the infinite intelligence, or God, is everywhere. And that concept of one story that Glenn is referring to has to do with the unity in all things and the idea that life is eternal and that our physical bodies operate within a natural cycle of birth and death. Death is just to be celebrated. It's a natural part of the experience of being here. And when we go, we all go to a very loving, wonderful place. We're not being judged. And once I was able to really intellectually 
emotionally and spiritually resolve and discard this idea that when we do transition, that there's this thing called hell, then suddenly I was just filled with a love and appreciation for the whole experience of the human thing that we do. And, and then just a deep sense of peace and recognition that when we, we move on, it's, it's perfectly normal. It's perfectly safe. It's perfectly fine. Ram Das, who's one of my big, big mentors, um, he talks about, he says, death is perfectly safe. It's no different than, than taking off a tight shoe. Glenn spent many years studying science of mind, and in doing so, was able to find self-love and peace with death. You know, I learned how to pray. I learned how to meditate. I learned self-love, which is one of the biggest obstacles we all overcome. And, and I feel that that's a big part of why we're here. What we learn in Science of Mind is that time doesn't exist outside of this particular experience. And so our soul, the essence of who we are, you know, we've always been and will always be. We're, we're infinite. We're energy. And so we don't expire. Um, and nor did Glenn's desire to learn expire. He eventually became a spiritual practitioner, but after 12 years, he decided it was time to step away from science of mind and see what was next for him. But I need to go out and use this in, in, in the real world with people who have no religion, people ha- who have a lot of religion, people who are, uh, you know, the, the, what do they call the people, the agnostics and the atheists. I want to be with those people and have these tools and talk with them, not to convert them, but what can I add to my belief? All of it with, I need to establish my own foundation because I want to hear it all. And I learned that I don't have to hate anybody. I don't have to disagree with anybody. Then it became this practice of how do I expand my belief beyond the principles and the dogmas that I may have picked up along the way, which is why all of these other aspects. So there is no religion that's off limits to me. And I delve into them and I find, oh yeah, that's exactly what science of mind says, or that's exactly what Christianity says, or Hinduism, or Islam. And it expands. You can really hear the passion in Glenn's voice. He's clearly someone who is a seeker. Right here, right now, he wants to lean in and learn all that he can. And as he continues to learn, the concept of infinity that he first heard about as a young boy continues to pop up. So I wanted to ask Glenn about how infinity influences his relationship with death. And so how do you think, it seems like that concept is a thread throughout your life, and how does the concept of infinity play into what you think will happen to you after death? Well, that's a great question, and I, and I appreciate it very much because I think about that a lot. And the bottom line truth, because I'm all about, I, I feel like all the answers to these questions are as practical as they are esoteric. The practical is we don't have any idea. Nobody has any idea. Not a single person living today can give us an empirical answer about those choices. We have people that have died and come back, and they've got wonderful, colorful stories but what's interesting, and I don't know if Glenn went on to share that there are people who are studying such stories and are finding that a lot of the people who go through a near-death experience 
find that their near-death experience actually reflects what they originally thought death was going to be like. But for many people, the question still remains, what's after that? What comes next? For Glenn, he believes that we are an individualized conscious expression of God, of one benevolent source, and one nature, and that we are infinite. Maybe it's this idea of reincarnation. Um, I try and refrain from using that term um, loosely because it means such different things to different people. And in the Hindu philosophy, for example, uh, reincarnation is often attached with a bit of a hierarchy. So if you let a good life this time in, in terms of karma then when you come back next time, you might be a little elevated. You might have an easier life. But if you had a bad life, you might come back as a a worm in the dirt or whatever. Uh, Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It goes back to nobody really knows. It's all conjecture. Um, So I use that term very specifically, that reincarnation, the idea that, yeah, I might come back in another incarnation as a human. But I, but I don't know. I also believe there's there's an infinite number of other things that I may potentially have the opportunity to do. Well, at this point in the conversation, usually a lot of people will say, well, what exactly moves forward? Because a fear of death that a lot of people have is what happens to my identity? What happens to my memories? What happens to me, right? Alexandria, Glenn, Katie, what happens to us? That's definitely a big fear of mine. What will happen to me, to my identity, While I love the concept of infinity, death feels very final to me, so it was really interesting for me to hear Glenn share his beliefs and what's true to him. But when we get to the other side, we have the benefit of this benevolent love, we have the the, the benefit of, of this benevolent guidance, we have this benefit, I think, of clarity, of understanding There's a lot of work to do there in terms of processing this. So what moves forward? I believe, and again, what all the teachings believe, is our our identity moves forward, but not in the way that we think of ourselves here and now. Of, of who we are. So this experience is making some of the, something of us that we won't fully realize until we're on that other side, right? You can't, you can't appreciate the beauty of the entire forest until you're out of it, right? When you're in it, yeah, it's great. And we're in it now and we can go, oh, look, beautiful tree, beautiful sky, beautiful whatever. But until you've zoomed out to see the totality of it, you don't really know what you've seen or what you've done or where you've been or what, what it made of you. And my perfect heaven, if you will, the way I fantasize about it is I get to go into a room that's got like Google for the universe, right? And I can go back and, and, and relive every second of my life on this plane, but I can look at it from the aspect of everyone else that was involved in my circle. So I can see my egocentricity. I can see where maybe I've healed that. I can see things that maybe I didn't heal while I was here. And that might be an indicator for the work that's yet 
for my soul to do, and that may become relevant for me in terms of what I decide I want to do next, because I believe, I, you know, who knows, none of us know, but I believe that, that I will have input into my next experience. I believe you will have input into your next experience, but a lot of that is going to be based on what's next for my soul. Now that you know how Glenn's spiritual path has encouraged him to ask these big questions, like what's next for his soul, and also how his path has helped guide him to a place where he could approach the news of his terminal diagnosis with curiosity, let's go back to the couple days after he got his diagnosis. I wanted to know whether his initial reaction changed after he had more time to reflect. So when they told you all this in the hospital, sounds like your first reaction was how interesting. And then you were in the hospital for a couple more days. Did your thought processes change? I mean, were you ruminating about it? Or what was going on in your head when you're in your hospital bed after getting this very heavy information? Uh, Am I reacting properly? That was my question. Am I reacting properly? Am I in denial? Am I uh, just trying to keep this stiff upper lip? After praying, meditating, talking with family, and reaching out to his spiritual practitioner friends, he came to the conclusion that no, he wasn't in denial, but that this was just how he was going to deal with the news of his terminal diagnosis. But that's not to say that he has been completely free of anxiety. Anytime anxiety creeps up, which is rare, I've never had fear, which is, which is interesting. Um, but anytime anxiety, like the process, and anxiety is really like, what's the process going to be like in terms of, I don't care, I'm not worried about pain or anything like that, but what is Katie going to have to do to care for me? And when's the appropriate time to call hospice? And, you know, I got my living will in place and, you know, all of my affairs in order. I've gone through all my journals and removed all the personal stuff I wouldn't want my kids or anybody to read. Um, You know, left the the stuff like what we're talking about because I I feel like maybe, you know, some of them might want to kind of, where was dad at all those years kind of thing. Um, But, yeah, that that was my process of making sure. And then once I had solidified that, then I just doubled down and went deep on that. Um, of the the prayer, the the praying, and the continuing to study, I've I feel like it's my final healing task, and my job now is to get through this in a healthy, wholesome, loving way. There's a term we use in science of mind where we say the patient was healed, but the patient died, and well, what got healed, whatever moves on. My body doesn't move on. What do I care if I beat the cancer or not? If I've healed my heart, if I've done what I I feel like intuitively I've set out to do, which in my case, I think a big part of it was self-love and learning to really love other people, get right with vulnerability, um, learning to be weak. You know, I'm six feet four, went through my whole life as this big, stern guy because I had a hard time being weak and vulnerable. Well, guess what cancer does? It really helps you get right with being weak and vulnerable. So I I look at it like that, like this is on earth, 
this is my, you know, my final, my final chore. And It seems as if some of Glenn's worries have had to do with the logistics surrounding his death, like when it might be the appropriate time to call hospice. So I was curious about how attached he was to having a specific number for his prognosis to potentially help guide him in making this decision. And so at this point, do you have they, the doctors given you a prognosis? Do you know what it is? Do you care what it is? I do from the standpoint of my family, um, because everybody's trying to prepare emotionally. So I do care from that standpoint. I do follow my numbers and I do ask. But doctors in Western medicine are so evasive and they're they're like lawyers in terms of the language that they use is not the language that you and I use. So You've got to really listen and know when to ask questions because you might come away thinking one thing and it, and it meaning something um, entirely, entirely different. So the reality is if I stopped every... He went on to share that the range he was given could be anywhere between three months and several years, depending on his treatment goals and his choices. But Glenn's intuition is telling him he has a nine to 12 month window. But what's more important to him than a number is that he doesn't suffer. When we started the chemo, I said, if I'm having these side effects, I'm done. I am not attached to being here. I'm indifferent to the outcome, stay or go. My one thing is I ain't going to suffer. Not because I'm afraid of suffering, but because I feel like it's needless. I feel like the universe has given me this beautiful, comfortable, magnificent exit strategy and it's mine to screw up. You know, if I want to fight tooth and nail for every hour, every month, whatever, the universe says, great. You know, if that's what you want to do, fine. We support that. But hey, just remember, you have this really easy out kind of thing here. When I asked my doctor with people with plasma cell leukemia, what does the end look like for me? She said, honestly, it's, it's like the most beautiful thing of all my patients that have transitioned my plasma cell and my myeloma patients, it's its the most wonderful thing. It's like, I can't remember the exact words, but like God gave you the gift of of coming home, you know, in the easiest, most beautiful way. She said, you'll get tired like you did, because it turns out Katie was right. We're either going to the hospital or we're going to the morgue. She said, if you hadn't gone to the hospital in another two days, you would have just gone into a coma your kidneys would have failed and and you would have drifted off. It would have it would have been painless. It would have been fine, you know? And I'm like, "Wow." So I have that to look forward to, which probably may have play into, you know, my my fear and anxiety around the actual experience because again, that's what a lot of people fear, but even then I don't I don't really care cuz hospice and drugs and all that, it'll be fine. I can't help but be in awe of Glenn in his trust in the process of death, his belief that things will be just fine, and his sense of peace with dying in general. At this point, you might be wondering if anyone in Glenn's life has pushed back, has wanted him to not be so okay with everything, maybe even try to change his mind and tell him to pursue more treatment or a different treatment. And if so... How does he navigate those conversations? When you have this terminal diagnosis, you can pretty much say whatever you want, and nobody's going to challenge you. Nobody's going to argue with you. Nobody's trying to change your mind. Um, well, that you know, that's not true. That's true for me. 
there's a lot of people out there facing this situation and their their circle of care, be it their doctors or their family and friends, are giving them, you know, unloading their fears about the situation on people. So, you know, someone like me who says, okay, well, you know, X amount of time and it's whatever, I have no fear and I'm moving on. You know, a lot of people that might share that are surrounded by people that say, no, 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 you know, you got to check out this trial or that drug or you've got to travel. And that in and of itself becomes pretty overwhelming. I'm so fortunate that everyone in my care circle, my doctors included, they support me. And now I'm pretty, pretty straightforward about how I feel and what I think. And so maybe it's just that nobody's come up with a better answer than what I've come up with for myself. So they don't challenge me. And they're very clear that they support me. And that is so helpful for anyone in this kind of situation. I was so happy to hear that Glenn feels supported. And it also made me think about the times when maybe I thought I was being helpful to someone, but that the help I was giving was born out of my own anxiety rather than what the person really needed at the time. I wanted to know more from Glenn about this struggle the tension between well-intentioned advice from others and the type of support that he really wants, and how those two may sometimes be in conflict. I would imagine it would be a lot harder if family members or friends were trying to offer a lot of advice and well-intentioned advice, but that makes your life a little bit more difficult in your decisions. Yeah, and sometimes you have to have a hard conversation with somebody like, are you in fear of my death or are you in fear of death in general? And, you know, my death is just something that you can't handle. If that's the situation, then you just need to keep your thoughts to yourself. You know, I'm happy to work with you around it, you know, but not from the standpoint of you trying to change my mind. I don't mind good information. In fact, my mom this morning sent me about an hour and a half long podcast of a myeloma doctor back East. That's just talking about, um, all the new drugs that are coming available for my situation. You know, you you get a lot of good information and I think all of it's well intended from people. Sometimes folks just don't stop and and think about who they're talking to and, and what information they're bringing to the conversation. You know, not everybody's as sensitive as, as other people, but fortunately for me, I'm, I'm pretty grounded in, in what I feel. I'm very grounded in what I feel and believe. So Those conversations usually turn into me helping them get more clarity just around my situation. You know, hey, just try and see it from my point of view. I don't want to really change anybody's mind, but maybe you can look at it and see it from my situation. And and that'll, you know, in my mind, and, and then maybe you'll just back the fuck off, you know, because I don't need... I don't need to hear all of that from you right now. I need love and support. So you never know how it'll end. So much of what we all need is just love and support. Even though Glenn's care circle is taking his lead, is giving him a lot of love and support, and isn't trying to change his mindset, I was still curious about how much his family wants to talk about his terminal diagnosis, and whether they want to know specifics, like exactly how much time he has left. It's not top of mind. You know, everyone was over for the birthday on Sunday, you know, freshly showered, clean clothes, washing their hands. We're all sitting outside, you know, social distancing. Um, and it was fine. And it, and it just doesn't come up. 
It, it just doesn't come up. I don't need to talk about it. They don't need to talk about it. They may say, how you doing today, dad? Or, you know, how's it going today, Glenn? You know, they want to know right here, right now. But everybody kind of knows that we're just kind of riding this out. And when it happens, we'll we'll get forewarning. You know, one of the interesting blessings back in 2007, my, my, my brother Kenneth, he was younger than I am. He died very suddenly, young, healthy, vibrant guy, died in a motorcycle accident. And it just rocked our whole family because nobody knew it was coming. Never, nobody had time to say goodbye. Um, you know, a little segues, you know, you're, I guess, you know, you realize now that my parents are now dealing with the death of their second child. So they've got their own special little hell that they're going through. But his sudden death just created a lot of anxiety for our family. It took everybody a long time to overcome that. Fortunately, I had, you know, I was heavily into science of mind at the time and, and I had that great support group to work me through that. And so they're all looking at this kind of overlaid on that and they look at it too like, wow, we have lots of time to say goodbye. We've got a lot of time to go for another hike. We don't really need to know all those specific dynamics because frankly, the answers aren't there. It just, it just doesn't come up. You know, it doesn't come up. And they know that it could be any day because if, if you ever read the symptoms of, of chemo, one of the symptoms of all of them is death. Uh, you know, other symptoms are heart attack, stroke. So, you know, I told my sister, it's like walking around in a suicide vest all day, but you don't have the button in your hand. Somebody else has it, you know. So you just never know. Every night when I go to bed, you know, and I pray and I meditate, it's like, hey, man, if this is it, you know, I'm cool. Let's go. And if I wake up tomorrow... Hey, I got a little more work to do. Let's get after it, you know. So that's kind of the attitude around all that around here. While we can never know exactly when we might die, we can still envision what an ideal death might look like. So I wanted to know from Glenn what a good death looks like for him. So I just want to ask you one last question, even though I feel like I could talk to you for many hours. Um, But so... What would you say, and you've touched on this a little bit, but what would you say that a good death would look like for you? Um, quick and predictable. Uh, I wouldn't want to be the guy laying there for, you know, a month in hospice in a coma where, you know, daily my wife is like, is today the day? Um, I would wish for that, not from the standpoint of suffering, because I don't imagine there'll be much suffering, you know, with the options for pain management now. I don't have any worry about that. You know, ideally for me would just be predictable. And I, I use that word again because, you know, I wouldn't want my wife to, to, or one of my kids to, you know, walk in and find me collapsed on the living room floor. You know, that would be, that would be hard for them to deal with. So I guess any ideas I have about what it would look like are, are pretty much, focused on what my transition, what kind of experience my transition is going to create for the people left behind to deal with it. Um, Because I don't have any concerns about pain or suffering. And I don't mind that the time would be at hand. So just, I guess that, you know, as, as peaceful, as comfortable for all of them, as as possible yeah because you know me what do i care you know i'll be i'll be gone right so it's not it won't be my problem it'll be their problem and uh, 
don't know if you've ever bungee jumped. I haven't. My wife didn't. She tells the story, but you're standing there, you know, up in the air and you're like, it's, the worst part is that anticipation of, you know, before you actually jump off the cliff or the thing or whatever. It's like, is it happening? You know, is it happening? Is it happening? And so to mitigate that tension or that angst for, you know, people here that are, are dealing with it, that would be my, my hope, my prayer. Thank you so much for sharing, Glenn. And know that while you're an example of how someone might choose to die for your children, know that you are also an example for me and whoever might be listening. When the time comes, I wish you a quick, predictable, and beautiful death.